This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Justin Giveney, welcome to Viral Jesus. Uh, we should be concerned about our neighbor. We shouldn't allow the kids in the neighborhood over to be drinking lead poison water and say, hey, uh, you know, politics is dirty. I don't want to touch it. No, they need you to touch it because uh, there are a lot of life and death situations that can be influenced by politics. From Christianity Today, this is Viral Jesus, a show about communication and the power of social connections, where we talk to some of the most influential Christian content creators to find out how they've made their faith go viral. I'm your host, Heather Thompson Day. Last season on episode 10, I had a conversation with Raymond Chang that was honestly one of my favorite conversations of the season, where he shared a study showing that Americans list their political identities as a greater source of one's identity than their religion, race, or ethnicity. Here is a quote from Raymond from that episode, which you really need to go listen to. He says this, That's a huge finding because that means that the average person in the United States is more Republican or Democrat than they are Christian. Our guest today is someone who will take us deeper into that type of conversation. It's Justin Giveney. Justin Giveney is an attorney and political strategist in Atlanta, Georgia, who leads the AND campaign as its co-founder and president. The AND campaign is a coalition of urban Christians who are determined to address the socio-political arena with the compassion and conviction of the gospel. He recently co-authored the book Compassion and Conviction with his fellow AND campaign leaders, Michael Ware and Chris Butler. All right, Justin, so something I like to do to open up all of our interviews is read to somebody back something that they've posted publicly online. So I hope you're in the hot seat right now, but I'm going to read this back to you. And I'm big on pinned tweets, by the way. So this is your pinned tweet. You say, being conservative or progressive on every single issue is intellectually lazy and unfaithful. Critique and push back on these flawed ideologies. Make conservatism sympathize and pursue racial justice. Make progressivism acknowledge absolute truth and sanctity of life. Hashtag and 2020. You have over 4,000 likes and over 1,000 shares and just dozens of comments on that. Tell me, why is that your pinned tweet? I think because that's at the heart of what the AND campaign is trying to do. Uh, We want to challenge the way that Christians especially view politics. And I think, unfortunately, we view politics through just a conservative or progressive ideological lens. And and unfortunately, that's not a biblical lens. And so what we've tried to do is challenge that, which doesn't always make us popular, but I think it's something that's necessary. So that's why I pinned it. It's, It's at the heart of what we're trying to accomplish. So tell us more about the AND campaign. I'm familiar, but for somebody who's not familiar at all, how are what does the organization look like? What type of initiatives do you guys do? Yeah, so the AND campaign is a Christian civic uh, organization started by myself, uh, Sho um, Baraka, who is a Christian artist and a pastor in Atlanta, um, Angel Maldonado. Uh, and really what we're trying to do is raise civic literacy among Christians. We're trying to help Christians understand the political process better. Uh, so that they can engage in a better way. 
and also to help them apply their values to the issues of the day, uh, to understand that sometimes we have to reframe the issues in order to answer them correctly, because, again, we can't use some of the frames that the, the world gives to us. Talk to us about your book or your latest book that you co-authored, Compassion and Conviction. What's at the heart of that? Yeah, compassion and conviction is is really our framework. Uh, this is us saying, hey, this is how a Christian should look at politics, which, which can lead us to different conclusions. But it is a framework we think that uh, is biblical. And the reason that we wrote it was because every time, you know, when we started the organization, we would go to colleges and churches and people were like, we need something. Because, you know, we talked to one pastor who said they had uh, Christians literally fighting in the church after um, I think it was the 2016 election. And they were saying, we, we need a resource to help us see through this and help us to see how we can do this in a more faithful way. And, and so that's what we try to do. It's a, it's a book that whether you've been uh, really paying attention to politics or whether you're just trying to get into politics, I think it works on different levels to help you understand, again, the process, but also communication, uh, why civility is important and so on. And so we really want to help Christians understand our role in the public square. I think it's probably one of the most important reads. I think I read it a year and a half ago or so. And my husband is actually the one who brought it home and he was really into it. And then he passed it on to me. I think when it comes to politics, right? Like it's this elephant in the room where I think sometimes faithful Christians say, well, then I just don't want to talk about it at all. Or I'm not political. I'm gospel centered. What would you say to that? Well, I don't think you can separate the two in that way. Mm. I mean, every, every citizen, especially in our country, is political whether you want, want to be or not. And so the question is really whether you're going to steward that properly. Uh, because once you're a citizen, you've entered in some sort of kind of a social contract and you have uh, rights and you have influence. The question is, are you going to uh, steward them? And I think that you should because politics touches every aspect of our society, uh, from what's in our food to what our children learn uh, to whether we get to go to church in, in a pandemic or not, right? These are issues that we should weigh in on, especially if we love our neighbor like we love ourselves. Uh, we should be concerned about our neighbor. We should not allow the kids in the neighborhood over to be drinking lead poison water and say, hey, uh, you know, politics is dirty. I don't want to touch it. No, they need you to touch it because uh, there are a lot of life and death situations that can be influenced by politics. At the same time, uh, I understand where people are coming from when they're hesitant because we can't make politics an ultimate thing. The church has been corrupted in some ways by politics and by doing politics for the wrong reasons and maintaining some of the, the wrong partnerships and leadership. So I do understand that, too, and we try to give some guidance in that regard as well. I remember I was on a flight probably a little bit before COVID, and I was sitting next to this 70-year-old Jewish man, and I was asking him some political questions, and he said to me, uh, you know, I really try not to get good at a dirty game. And it kind of just re-says, I guess, the question that we just talked about, but why do you think it is that so many people have such an adverse reaction to even starting this conversation. And it, what's funny is you do politics and religion, which is exactly what people say. Don't talk about those two things ever publicly. So talk to me about your decision. What was the moment for you where you felt like God was calling you to step into that? Talk to me about your background that led you here. Yeah. So I'm by trade, I'm an attorney and I've been in doing okay. political strategy for over a decade. So I've been running okay. campaigns uh, in Atlanta um, whether it be, you know, city council stuff or, you know, state stuff or even referendums to get referendums passed. 
And as I was kind of engaging, and obviously, you know, I'm in Atlanta, it's a very progressive space. Um, as I was engaging running campaigns, I just noticed that there was, there was this huge false dichotomy in politics that, especially for a lot of Christians, they felt like if you cared about social justice, which I do, that you had to go all the way to the left. And whatever other convictions you had to let, let go of during that journey left, you just did it and you really didn't even question it. On the other side, though, with some of my Republican friends, it, it felt like if you cared about moral order and the sanctity of life, you would go all the way to the right and that you would let go of some of the compassion that I think uh, Jesus demands that we have. And so I said, you know, we have to do this better uh, because mm. you have a good amount of Christians on both sides of the aisle who want to be faithful. But it seems like we need an updated framework to deal with right. uh, this moment in time. And so that's what we were trying to create. And I just realized, I mean, God put it on my heart pretty heavy. I couldn't continue in the political space and not try to help create a better path and to help people do this better, and help myself do it better, to look in the mirror and say, what have I uh, compromised that I shouldn't have compromised uh, while trying to succeed in this space? Actually, talk to me about that. Did you ever have a time that you're working on something and you just feel like this feels it like it goes against my core values or beliefs and then what happened in that situation? Yeah, quite a bit. I, I just think, you know, I'll be straight up with you. I've, I've been a, a Democrat all my life. And so I think there are a lot of things that I agree with. There's a lot of reasons I think they're, you know, what, where they stood on the civil rights movement and all that. But at the same time, I started to see that there was kind of a disrespect of the church. And, and all this mm -hmm. kind of came to a head when I was a delegate at the Democratic National Convention in 2012. And there were some votes that went down that I thought were just very disrespectful for the church, where people's votes weren't even really counted if they didn't come out right. It was like kind of a foregone conclusion what the party wanted the outcome to be, even though these were people who got voted in by their districts. And so I went back home after that 2012 uh, convention and I was just, I was just kind of distraught. I kind of looked in the mirror and say, you know, who do you want to be? You didn't you know, you weren't taught to just go along with everything. Uh, and so, I, you know, at that point, I decided something had to change. I couldn't keep compromising myself. There was another part of in 2012 where they had a vote to take God given out of the platform, which was just a nod to natural law. And the folks that wanted out were louder than the folks who didn't. But I realized that a lot of folks who weren't at the convention weren't represented well. And I wanted to change that. And I thought the same similar things needed to happen in the Republican Party. Uh, and God just kind of put it on my heart to to enter into it in a different way. And so how do you view social media? Do you think it's helpful in these types of conversations or is it a dangerous vehicle to drive that conversation? What is your most preferred method of talking about intense conversation like politics and religion? My most preferred method would be in a, in a real conversation face-to-face, -face, uh, whether it be a, a panel in a church or whatever, uh, where you can really see people, people are kind of, nobody's anonymous, so they don't just say say whatever they, uh, you know, say whatever they feel at the moment without uh, thinking about how it affects other people. Uh, so that's my preferred method. But at the same time, uh, Heather, I'd have to admit that I don't know if any campaign would have the exposure that it has without social mm -hmm. media. Uh, and so it's definitely a tool. I don't think it's all bad. It's, it's definitely a tool that we have used to spread the message that we're trying to send. I think it's all about having discipline when you're on there. Uh, people may notice a lot of times when something really crazy goes down, the end campaign, we don't immediately respond. Mm. We want to make sure that we have all the facts, that we know what, what happened, because people are looking to us for a way to, to view things biblically. And so what I try to tell people is immediate responses, I know folks in different tribes will push back, but immediate responses are overrated. 
Uh, you want to make sure that you get it right when you're weighing in on an issue that really impacts people's lives. And so that's one of the disciplines that we try to have and not waiting unnecessarily long. And if something really is urgent, then we need to speak into it. But in most cases, if you wait a day or two to speak into something while, um, you know, all the facts and things like that get worked out, you actually end up in a better with a better response. You don't lose anything by not being hasty. Do you guys have rules of engagement when it comes to online? Is this something that you guys have talked about strategically or as things happen? Do you have a text message group where you say, okay, who's taking this? Yes, it's not so formal, uh, but we do have obviously text message groups and we generally understand that we try not to get into heated uh, back and forth on social media. I'll admit that I have done it before. Uh, and it never usually works out well. So usually we try to stay out of those kind of bathroom force and say, hey, maybe when we're in your area or maybe there's a better forum to have a longer conversation where we can express what, you know, what we really feel rather than just in these few characters that we have on this platform. And actually speaking of like just a few characters to try to make somebody think about something or change their mind. Have you seen that? Have you had moments or have people circled back for you where they say, it was because of what I saw online or because of one of your guys's video. Wasn't there like a really great video you guys put out? So we had a couple that people really uh, appreciated. We had one with our whole life uh, group, which was on uh, the conversation about abortion. Then we had one that was about uh, kind of how to address the LGBTQ conversation. Uh, and both of those, I think people saw us reframe it in a more biblical way. And both of those were really uh, popular. So have you ever had somebody circle back and actually say, you opened up my mind or you actually changed my opinion. Because I think the criticism, and obviously I'll tell you my bias, I teach social media. I love social media. I think it is a fantastic communication tool. I think there's dangers to it, but it's not going anywhere. And so I'm just somebody that thinks if the world is going to use it, I think the church needs to learn how to use it effectively as well. Um, But so the criticism people often give is, well, you can't actually change anybody's mind online. And personally, I've seen that to not be true. I have had direct encounters with people where it seemed like their worldview actually shift over time, but because of posts that they saw online. And I'm just wondering, have you experienced that with people or do you have any examples of somebody who circled back for you guys and said, because of your work, I actually see this issue differently? Oh, absolutely. Um, It's never been through a a kind of combative argument. I'll say that. It's never been through, okay, yeah, yeah, I yeah. changed your, your mind through this back and I forth. I will argue you. Because I, yeah, because I called you the right name, right? Yeah. Um, no, but it has been, you know, like the tweet that you um, read earlier. We're framing where we're saying, look, if you're always conservative or progressive, are you really thinking? Or have you outsourced your public witness to somebody else? Some people just have never thought of it that way because some people were taught that if you're a Christian, this is the way you think yes. about politics and, and that's it. And so, I mean, almost every time we go to a Christian college or, or, you know, in university, uh, when we go to our different chapters, somebody's saying, man, you guys really help me think differently about politics, which is great because we've seen it done so wrong by Christians for so long. And that's why people want to stay out of it. I I don't bash people that feel like, hey, I don't want to touch it because it's ugly because we it has been ugly. And the church Mm -hmm. has been abused and abused others because it hasn't been done right and because it's been seen as an ultimate thing where what I call kind of the, the politics of Christian self-interest, where it's all about power and not really your neighbor. Have you guys had any negative feedback from church leadership or church organizations 
And some of this might be based on race. I'm not sure. But for me growing up, I always had examples of Christians who were Democratic. And that's probably normal in the black church. But I I knew Christians who were Republican. So it never occurred to me until much later in life, to be totally honest, that to be a Christian, somebody had to be Republican. And I hear that a lot um, as a professor, depending on what classrooms I'm in, that people really do view the party as an extension Mm -hmm. of the church. So I can imagine that as you kind of try to reframe that issue, you've gotten some heat from that. Oh, yeah, we definitely get pushed back. And I, and I grew up similar to you. I didn't even know people thought that way until much later on. It's, you know, I thought people knew history until I learned that a lot of adults didn't even know the, the history of race in America. So that's something that I had to learn. We certainly get a lot of pushback because sadly and from both sides, really, because sadly, people conflate their theology and their ideology and they just don't see where, where they've made that mistake. Um, our whole thing too, Heather, I think it's important to, to note that we don't think Christians are always going to come to the same conclusion. So even within right. the framework that we provide, it's to say, well, we may take different directions in trying to help our neighbor, but the, it, there are guidelines. And I think there are boundaries in what Christians should be doing, how we should be talking about others and the type of leaders that we should be supporting and how we should hold people accountable. That's really what we're trying to get at. So when we get pushback, it's, it's expected. Like I said, I'm coming from the political space. Uh, I learned very early on that you don't get on the field unless you want to get hit. And so, you know, mm. that's part of how it goes. We anticipate that and try to respond in the best way possible. Not always perfectly, but I think we have um, a framework that's been helpful and helped us communicate even with people who don't get what we're trying to trying to do. So when we take a conversation like abortion, which I think is probably one of the biggest, most contentious issues when we're looking at the church and the state and the separation of that. How do you guys reframe that type of issue? So we, we say, look, look at this. We think that God cares. We think life is sacred. I mean, that, that's something that we truly believe. Um, and we think that at the same time, we, we need to look at it differently than it's been handed to us. Because the way that it's, it comes to us is either you care about the woman and the fact that she should make the choices that she needs to make. Okay. Or you care about the child and the life of the child. But that's such a flat view on both ends, such a flat view of this entire dynamic that is really hard for people. Um, if you take the the baby out of the conversation, it's very easy, right? You can say, oh, well, of course, just make the choice and move forward. I mean, you don't, what are you even talking about? There's nothing to even consider. Okay, true. But what if you put it in there? And what if you put in on the other side, what if you say, don't you understand that some of these women are in crisis pregnancies where right. they have no support? where they feel like their lives are miserable already and they don't want to have someone else's life be miserable with them. Um, these are very serious issues. And if you don't have the compassion to see that it's not just a yes or no for somebody, uh, that is not an easy decision, then that's problematic. But we also push it back against the idea that it is an easy decision. Um, and mm-hmm. so we, we would hope that, you know, a woman would never feel that an abortion is necessary. We don't think we think God has something greater for everyone's life, mm-hmm. but we're not going to act like it's an easy decision and that people aren't put in bad positions and that some some of the people that are promoting some of these pro-life policies aren't doing things to help people uh, on, on once they are born and to help the mother and, and give yeah. them support. These two things have to be thought of together. And unfortunately, when we get in our kind of ideological teams, we take one part of the reality out and make it an easy answer. Um, and, and so what we're trying to do is get to, to get people to think through that a lot differently, to think about the mother, support the mother and support 
uh, the child at the same time. This episode is brought to you in part by World Relief, an organization that partners with the local church to serve the most vulnerable. Around the world, increased conflict, the lingering effects of COVID-19, and disasters caused by our changing climate have left millions of people in desperate situations. Many are fleeing their homes and are facing starvation, persecution, and more. These overwhelming challenges cause many of us to wonder, can I make a difference? The answer is simple. Yes, you can. When you join The Path, World Relief's monthly giving community, you partner with World Relief in bringing hope and transformation to the millions experiencing vulnerability around the world. And when you partner with your monthly gift by September 30th, your first year of monthly gifts will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000. Double the impact of your giving and visit worldrelief.org slash viraljesus today. Give me examples of what that looks like practically yep. for a Christian, because this is, again, I think one of probably non-Christians, this is the issue, right? They see Christians just theologically debate these types of issues, but nobody does anything, right? It's just yep. like this conversation piece. So what practically would you advise or have you guys advise as like initiatives that the church can do to try to step into this middle ground space? Yeah, I think one thing when, when you're talking about policy. So if I'm talking to pro-life people, I'm going to say, you know, I understand where you're coming from. Life is sacred, but you need to think about things, policies like paid family leave. You need to think mm. about how some mothers have a kid and then two weeks later have to go back to work because they don't have any support. If you care, then you got it. You can't put this in on an island. You can't isolate the issue as if it's not uh, impacted by any other issues. Uh, I would also say you have to look at the uh, maternal mortality rate in places like Alabama and Mississippi. And if you care about life, really ask why that's the case and put just as much effort into changing that as you do into some of the other questions. And then when I talk to my more progressive friends, I say, man, yes, it's a really easy conversation if you act like that child is invisible, that it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. But we don't erase mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to sit in that tension and once it gets too easy, when you have this serious of a procedure and of an issue, if the answer gets too easy to you, I think maybe you've dodged the true reality of what's going on. I read um, in the book, I think it's Invisible Influence by Jonah Berger, and he talks about politics. And he gives this example of a study that they did where they read to a room full of Democrats a um, social welfare policy that was more more conservative than any conservative policy. And then they read to a room full of conservatives, a social welfare policy that was more liberal than any policy that actually existed. And so, of course, they just said, what are your opinions? And the people's conservatives um, loved it and Democrats hated it. Then they did one difference, which is what is very fascinating to me. And I'm curious for your thoughts on it. They said, oh, by the way, 95% of Democrats agree with this policy. And then they told the Republicans, by the way, 95% of Republicans agree with this policy. And what they found in that study was that people changed their mind based on the social group. So it wasn't even the policy, really, that they disagreed with. It was staying in conformity and in line with the group. And if 95% of Republicans agreed with it, Republicans would pass. And a liberal 
social welfare policy that was more liberal than any policy that had ever been created in this study that they did um, referenced by Jonah Berger. So my question for you is, what do you think about that? How do you think it is that we are just too different ideological people that see these issues so differently or how much of it is the tribalism that we see and I'm a part of this group and that's why and and as long as it's okay in my group I, I view it this way oh that's huge uh, it's really huge, about, right I, yeah it's, it's really about identity and so many people there was I wish I could remember the numbers but there was a study that came out that said the most educated people are most likely to make decisions based on their identity. So not based on a critique, not based on a thorough analysis, but based on what smart people are supposed to think, right? Mm. So if smart people are supposed to think that you're supposed to be pro-life, then that's a pro-choice, then I'm going to be pro-choice. If smart people are supposed to think I feel this way about LGBTQ issues, then that's what I do, not necessarily a critique on their own. And that's where the conversation about kind of ideological identity gets very serious. And we're Christians. And that, again, that's where I'm getting, getting at on that post that you talked about earlier, Christians have to critique. Christians have to be thoughtful in order to be faithful. Christians mm. have to be w- willing to step back from their tribe and critique it and shine a light on some of the places that a lot of folks want to keep dark. Because if I can get you to make a decision based on who you think you are rather than on your values, then that's an easy. I mean, you made my job really easy. If I'm a political leader, I'm a politician. My job is easy. If I say, hey, we're this and we believe that. They're 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 this and they believe that it makes it very easy. So I I think you do see people making those decisions based on identity. And another element of that is what I call opposition center politics, where people make decisions just to be on the other side of Mm -hmm. conservatives or just to be on the other side of progressives, because we've come to believe that they're so bad that the right answer has to be the opposite of the answer that they give. And that is very dangerous, not to base what you think on what's virtuous or right and wrong, but to base it on being the opposite of somebody else. Serious issues that Christians just can't can't go along with and have to be willing to push back, even if that means uh, getting uh, canceled or whatever whatever happens to you. Right. You've got to be willing to push back and think for yourself through your, your biblical values. This is bringing up so many. Uh, there's like all these communication theories that are going through my mind, and one of them is called the repulsion hypothesis. And essentially it says we are most compelled by repulsion. So it's not that we are attracted to people who are similar to us. It's that we're so repulsed by people who are dissimilar that then we are ended up left with only people who are similar. And there was this app that was matching people. You know, there's Tinder and all these dating apps. Well, it would match you based on who you hated. So if you both hated something, you'd swipe and then it would match you with a person. And that app was super successful. I remember seeing it on Shark Tank where people were developing relationship because we both hate the same person or hate the same things. And that binds us, which for the Christian is problematic. Oh, it's terrible. I mean, and think <laughs> about it this way. How ironic is it that in the, the people that you disdain the most are at the center of your decision making, right? That, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I think we know as Christians, mm. we cannot be motivated by anything other than what Jesus gave us and what he, what he told us. Uh, we cannot be motivated by what others do or don't do. We might need to address it. But there's something greater if we're going to transcend the moment. And that's the reason that I another something else I talk a lot about is moral imagination, which allows mm. us not to be caught up in the moment, but actually to see something greater than what is at the moment, to see kind of what ought to be instead of being caught up in the moment. Now, the moment matters. We don't dismiss it. But sometimes we got to step out of it and say, you know, even that person who's cursing me and call me out of my name, 
They have a story. They have a testimony. And I'm going to treat them in a way that they're not treating me. That takes moral imagination. That takes faith uh, to be able to do that. And, and too often in our politics, we're just not willing to take it there. Justin, that's really good. Moral imagination is a book. It's coming. It is coming. <laughs> that is so good. Okay. You recently wrote an opinion piece that talked about the black church titled the black church can depolarize religious freedom. And in that you say this, I'm not talking about diversity for the sake of diversity, but rather diversity for the sake of democracy and a healthy discourse that can effectively come to solutions. The traditional black church's public witness providing a compelling example of how to disagree and fight for freedom without contempt. Can you unpack that for me a little bit? Yeah, what I'm kind of responding to is the culture war. Um, and if you look deeply at the culture war, the culture war is controlled by two groups, uh, primarily uh, white evangelicals and white secular progressives, most of them affluent. Um, and they kind of control the culture war. There are two sides of it. But as I talked to you earlier, they frame the issue so wrong and that mm -hmm. there's important issues like religious liberty, which is what I'm getting at that need to be addressed through a different framework, through a more uh, pluralistic, in a societal sense, through a more pluralistic framework, uh, to say that you know these two views have failed over and over again to come to resolutions because they're so opposition-centered and they hate each other so much. I don't even know if they want a solution. Well, you have to get mm. people who aren't invested in the culture war when you're talking about an issue like religious liberty to speak into it, to say why it's important without carrying all the, the baggage that you see from the old moral majority and all them and being willing to correct what they're doing. Um, and that's why it was so important that something that we did earlier this year was get a large number of African-American uh, faith leaders to sign a onto a, a statement talking about the importance of uh, religious liberty uh, in a way that we hadn't before. To speak in it, to speak on it in a way that kind of reflects the civil rights movement and to say, look, we disagree with some folks, but we love them. And not we're not only going to say we love them, we're going to reflect that we love them in the policies that we advocate. In fact, we're going to advocate for them just as much as we would advocate for ourselves. When you can talk about religious liberty and talk about other issues with that mentality, with that civil rights era mentality, which we mm -hmm. kind of see ourselves as the heirs of that civil rights um, movement then you can really do something that's about change and not about this back and forth that has gone nowhere, that's hurt so many people uh, because we can't get past the hangups that I think two groups that kind of need to move out of the way a little bit and let others speak into the conversation. Justin Giveney is the co-author of the book, Compassion and Conviction, The Anne Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. You guys, you have to read this book if he has not convinced you just listening to him. I'm telling you, I really enjoyed it and I know my husband did as well. Um, I've been doing something different just in this season where I'm asking people online, if they could sit down with the person I'm talking to, what types of questions would they ask them? And Ange Hunt, 26, asked, how do you stay faithful to your calling when so many people from both sides come after you? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I, I think primarily it's about community. It's about mm -hmm. having people around you that are going through the same things, that understand we're going through and have integrity and are trying their best to be faithful. So I think my group of friends, my, my community, folks like uh, Esau McCauley, who I know you've had on here before, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Lisa Fields, Charlie Dates, um, uh, Chantel Anderson, you know, those are folks that I can lean on in our chat groups and things like this and say, hey, how should I respond to this? What should I do? And seeing them go through things and respond faithfully always helps me out. And then I would also say I, I just get a lot of motivation from 
the folks who came before me. You know, my, my grandfather was a civil rights era preacher. And when I look at the things they went through, somebody called me a name on, you know, social media. It doesn't seem mm-hmm. that bad. Uh, and so I can kind of face some of those things because I know they've gone through worse and I know I have a, a legacy to uphold. But most importantly, I want to reflect uh, what, what Christ does. And, and to be honest, I haven't always gotten it right, but I think that has helped me stay kind of on mission. Uh, and so I'm, I'm thankful for those things. I just want to piggyback off something you said, because it echoes what a few different people have said as we've talked to them this season, which is that you have people that you send either tweets to or different criticism. You have a community that you can run things by that help you in your responses. And I just think that's so important. I have the same thing. And I want people listening to realize that, that this isn't something you you do alone, that Christianity is meant to be lived out in community and finding good community is so important. So thank you for saying that. Along the same lines, Jaco Boyama tweeted, I would like to know how one remembers to love the people that you intensely disagree with. And this is probably when I'm talking to various people in churches, this is a question that people really genuinely, especially recently, I think, are struggling with. How do we actually love people who we feel like don't even value my my humanity or value my existence? Talk to me about that moral imagination. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's the moral imagination. But I think scripture speaks to that very well. I mean, when you look at how Christ embraced tax collectors, we have to think about who the tax collectors were. I mean, within the, the Jewish community, these are the folks that you would probably call, somebody would call them sellouts. So you would say, guys, you are taking advantage of your own people. You're putting your own people into terrible situations and you're uh, enabling others to exploit them. And somehow Christ still embraced those folks. And I think we really have to think about that very hard and how tough that is. The other thing is you don't want to return the favor. Um, too often in our politics, we end up looking like the people that we despise most. Mm. One of the things that I've said before is when you really hate somebody or dislike somebody that much, you not only dislike their vices, you start to dislike their virtues to where you can't admit that they do anything wrong. They, they can do anything right. Mm. That's not who we, we want to be. And then I, lastly, I always try to remember I've, I've had some terrible ideas. I've done some terrible <laughs> things. I've taken some terrible positions. Thank God somebody had grace for me. Yeah. Um, so thank God somebody said, you know what? You're not your worst mistake. Um, and so we have to want people's redemption even more than we want their punishment. Mm-hmm. We have to want their redemption even more than we want them to change their mind on a particular issue. That's Christian. And that's what separates us in a lot of ways. And we just have to embrace it even when we can't see it. Uh, in the moment. So good. Ryan T. Land is wondering, how do we decide what cultural or political issues are worth having conflict over and which ones are not? Yeah, I think things that directly impact human dignity. Uh, We are all created in the image of God. If somebody's created in the image of God and they're being imprisoned longer than they should be in prison, uh, they're not be they're not uh, given a fair chance or given a a, a a chance to even get an education. Um, if they're not given the chance at life, things that impact human dignity are always worth speaking out on. And I think we see that in the prophets. We see that in Amos when he goes to Israel and others and says, "I see God sees how you're treating people in your courts that you're you're partial, right? That that's a problem. God sees how you're not taking care of the poor. Uh, human dignity should lead how Christians view politics." 
Um, and we again, we may come to different conclusions, but those conclusions shouldn't be shouldn't center us. Right. They mm-hmm. should center uh, other people. They should center our compassion and our conviction. Uh, and that's that's what the Ann campaign has been trying to communicate. Here's the last one. It says from Rain Carousel wants to know what gives you hope. How do you hold on to hope? Again, I think I think hope comes from you know I, I love my church community. Um, you know my for instance my uh, Bible study uh, group and just to see you know I have a very uh, multi generational transgenerational whatever you want to say uh, church and just to see the elder saints and hear their stories and. When they, they know what I'm doing, they know about my ministry and just to see how they look and, and just have hope in me uh, and, and in what we're doing and what my organization is doing to change things. To me, that, mean, that means so much uh, to have folks who've been through so much in, in America, who've been treated as less than what they really are in the eyes of God, kind of say, we think you, you know, we think you, the Ann campaign and others can help this situation and can do things that we might not have had an opportunity to do to me. That's all the, you know, that's all the motivation I need. And it certainly gives me hope for, uh, uh, for tomorrow. Justin Giveney is the co-author of the book, Compassion and Conviction, The Anne Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. You can order that on Amazon or wherever books are sold. I want to end by asking you one last question. Our show is called Viral Jesus, and virtually all credible historians, Christian and non-Christian alike, agree that there was a man named Jesus who actually lived and walked this earth 2,000 years ago. How can we, 2,000 years later, best communicate who Jesus was and what his mission is? That's great. I I would say that as far as it uh, happens in the public square, we could do that by being as honest as we can be and admitting when we're wrong and admitting when when the other Mm. side gets something right. That is so countercultural right now to say, you know what? We got this wrong. You know, we were wrong on this particular issue and other people got that right. That's humility. And I think what's lacking almost most in our public square is humility, the ability to 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 be honest about what you get right and what you get wrong. And so I think I think that's one way, at least in the public square, that we can say, I want to be like Jesus. Here's what that looks like me being honest and me reaching out to others and caring for the people who least expect me to care about them. Thanks, Justin Gibney, for joining us for this episode. We like to end every episode with a little segment I call Growing Viral. And this is where I give you some direct strategies you can implement into your real life that will help you be a better communicator and connector both online and off. Here is your Growing Viral homework. I invite you to think about one of the principles of the AND campaign, which is redemptive justice. My husband has worked with at-risk youth in the school system for many years, and I can just remember him coming home and talking to me about this idea called restorative practice, which reminds me a lot, honestly, of redemptive justice. So for example, one time there was a student and the teacher got mad at them for sagging their pants. And so they told the student to pull up their pants. And when they said, pull up your pants, the student screamed F you to the teacher. And they got sent to the office, which obviously is horrible. You cannot curse out your teachers. That is a very bad practice. But what was discovered through some conversation with the student 
was that the student didn't own a pair of pants that reached all the way to their ankles. So they were sagging their pants not to be disrespectful, but because they couldn't afford new pants. And when confronted by the teacher in front of everyone to pull up their pants and reveal that their pants were actually too small for them and too short, they cursed. Because, and this is something every educator knows, students would typically rather look bad than dumb or poor. So rather than just suspend the student, my husband's job was to look for ways to restore them to the classroom environment. So for example, it is a better practice to tell the student, okay, I want you to write a letter to the teacher apologizing for disrespecting them and then also including strategies that you should have used when you felt embarrassed or when you felt ashamed, what should you have done in that moment rather than curse in front of everybody to get out of the situation. The goal isn't simply punishing people for bad consequences. It's restoring people back to relationship even after they make poor decisions. So here is your homework. Is there anyone in your life who you can practice redemptive justice with? Is there anyone you can use a restorative practice strategy on? Think about it. And then I want you to do it. The Anne campaign has this quote. It's on their website. It says this, Redemptive justice challenges corrupt use of power and calls all people to use the power God has given them stewardship over for good. Viral Jesus was brought to you by Christianity Today. I've been your host and creator, Heather Thompson Day, producer and audio engineer, Lauren Joseph, and executive producer, Ed Gilbreth. Please review and recommend us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and rate us on your preferred platform. Next episode, we talk to Felicia Wu Song about how our social media use can be causing us to lose our sense of community. I'll see you next week for another conversation where a viral Jesus guest talks and you and I listen so we can learn. I love growing with you all on Viral Jesus. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus podcast, two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.